Good evening everyone and welcome back for this, the fourth of our summer school theme talks for this year. If you've been to any of the previous talks, you'll know that you are in for a nourishing and stimulating evening. As always, this welcome from me comes on behalf of the whole of the summer school panel in slightly engineered alphabetical order of what we each had for tea last night. We are Nicola Temple, Michael Allard, Jane Blackall and Kate Brady McKenna. And we really do welcome you here. You are welcome no matter what. Wherever you're joining us from, however you're feeling, however settled you are in the space where you are, you are welcome here. Your presence in our midst and on our screens is important. These theme talks are a sacred offering from the speakers and are offered as acts of worship as well as talks. As you'll know, the overall theme of the week is right relationship, practicing love, peace and justice in everyday life. And each talk is around an hour and 15 minutes. I will be introducing tonight's speakers shortly, but we do have some housekeeping notices first. These help us keep our time together running smoothly and help us to be in right relationship with each other as we create sacred space online. You will have noticed that you're muted and that the chat box isn't available. It's very much easier for everyone without those distractions. If you do have questions which crop up during the talks, please make a note of them. And if you still want to ask them after the evening's over, please contact the speaker and ask if they're happy for you to do that. Please remember, as I said, these talks are sacred offerings. Subtitles are available. Certainly they are if you're on a laptop or a PC. You should be able to toggle them on and off at the bottom. So I suggest that if you need to play with that, you do it while I'm speaking to get that bit out of the way. The subtitles are live and automatic. So if they say something you don't expect, please work on the basis that the subtitles might be wrong. If there are any problems with it, let one of the panel know and we'll see what we can do afterwards. We acknowledge that an hour is a long time to sit still and too long to just look at a screen. So you have our blessing to turn your cameras off whenever you feel you'd like to, including keeping it off for the whole time that we're here. If you do have your camera on, if you get up for a stretch or whatever else, please just turn your camera off while you're away from the screen. After the talk finishes, there'll be a five minute break for us all to make ourselves comfortable. Then we'll gather again to join in smaller groups to have some guided discussion on the talk. You may need to leave at that point. And if you do, you go with our blessing. The groups, uh, if you do stay for the groups, they won't be monitored or recorded, but we do know that you'll all be respectful and compassionate. If you would like a pastoral discussion with a minister about something which arises in these talks, you're invited to contact Reverend Michael Allard or myself at any time between the session ending and 9.45 p.m. You've got our contact details with your invitation and we'll each keep an eye on our email boxes and our Facebook messengers. Please do bear in mind that this is for pastoral issues relating to the talks. And so to introduce our speakers for tonight, in alphabetical order of first names, we're hearing from Alex Bryanson and Tori Glynwell. Tori, whose pronouns are they and them, hails from the heart of the Black Country and now lives in Norwich, Norfolk. 
with an interest in earth-centered spirituality, they came to Unitarianism 16 years ago on the advice of a friend and found a home. They work as a qualified childcare practitioner alongside their wife, are a member of Girl Guiding, as well as pursuing writing for fun in their spare time. Alex has been a Unitarian since 2010, I'm sorry, and was an active member of Richmond and Putney Unitarians before relocating to the Wirral in 2015. Since the pandemic began, he's been a virtual Unitarian thanks to the heart and soul gatherings. And in the before times, he set up Rainbow Unitarians, a group for those of us in the denomination who identify as LGBTQ+. Alex trained as a Unitarian service leader and contributed a chapter on the environment and eco-spirituality to Kate Wyman's Living with Integrity, Unitarian Values and Beliefs in Practice, published by the Lindsay Press in 2016. He lives with several chronic illnesses, including CSFME, and was diagnosed as autistic at age 48, which he persists in calling midlife. And so now I invite you all just to take a couple of breaths to settle yourself into a spirit of sacred receptiveness. And I will pass you over to Alex and Tommy. Good evening, everyone. And um, Tori and I would like to start with some thank yous. Um, thank yous to the panel for inviting us to give this talk. Thank you to Kate Brady McKenna for uh, the introduction, the hosting, and helping with the chalice, as you'll see a bit later, and to Jane Blackhall for being director, producer, and camerawoman this evening. And thank you, not least, to all of you for being here. And we hope that what we're going to do with you this evening will prove useful uh, in some way. We're going to start now with some gathering words in the form of the Rainbow Christ Prayer by Kittredge Cherry and Patrick S. Chen. So if you'd like to do whatever you need to do to get ready to pray together, I'll proceed. The Rainbow Christ Prayer by Kittredge Cherry and Patrick S. Chen. Red is for life, the roof of spirit. Living and self-loving Christ, you are our root. Free us from shame and grant us the grace of healthy pride so we can follow our inner light. With the red stripe in the rainbow, we give thanks that God created us just the way we are. Orange is for sexuality, the fire of spirit. Erotic Christ, you are our fire, the word made flesh. Free us from exploitation and grant us the grace of mutual relationships. With the orange stripe in the rainbow, kindle a fire of passion in us. Yellow is the self-esteem, the core of spirit. Out Christ, you are our core. Free us from closets of secrecy and give us the guts and grace to come out. With the yellow stripe in the rainbow, build our confidence. Green is for love, the heart of spirit. Transgressive outlaw Christ, you are our heart, breaking rules out of love. 
in a world obsessed with purity, you touch the sick and eat with the outcasts. Free us from conformity and grant us the grace of deviance. With the green stripe in the rainbow, fill our hearts with untamed compassion for all beings. Blue is for self-expression, the voice of spirit. Liberator Christ, you are our voice speaking out against all forms of oppression. Free us from apathy and grant us the grace of activism with the blue stripe in the rainbow. Motivate us to call for justice. Violet is for vision, the wisdom of Christ. Interconnected spirit of Christ, you are our wisdom, creating and sustaining the universe. Free us from isolation and grant us the grace of interdependence. With the violet stripe, in the rainbow, connect us with others and with the whole creation. Rainbow Christ, you light up the world. You make rainbows as a promise to support all life on earth. In this rainbow space, we can see all the hidden connections between sexualities, genders and races. Like the rainbow, May we embody all the colors of the world. Amen. Our next reading is a devotional reading and is the symbol of our shared faith by Paul Stephen Dodenhoff. Joy and grief. Health and sickness, light and darkness, peace and anger, life and death, wholeness and brokenness. We each bring all of these here to this sanctuary of unity in diversity for this one hour of this one day and pour them out, commingling the oil of our lives to become the flame of this chalice, the symbol of our shared living faith. And we also have a prayer by Mary Oliver called Praying. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones, just pay attention, then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. In this contribution to Unitarian Summer School 2022, we want to think about how, as Unitarians, we can be in right relationship with people who are different from ourselves. 
maybe those who don't fit into assumed norms of the society we all live in. Some of these norms are usually unspoken and taken as read. For example, that everyone is able-bodied and in good health, has no neurological difference, or is heterosexual and cisgender. Such assumptions are a form of discrimination and may be both deliberate and prejudiced, for example, trans or homophobia, or simply the result of a lack of conscious thought. For several decades now, feminists have protested against the unspoken assumption that the male is the norm. In Alex's former career, for example, there were unspoken assumptions even in the 2010s that employees could work 80 hours a week because they had someone else to take care of the kids and the home. But in this talk today, we're going to focus on three aspects of divergence from assumed norms that we can address from personal experience. Being non-heterosexual, and in Tori's case, mine, of non-binary gender identity. Neurodiversity, in our cases, for Alex being autistic and for me having ADHD, and living with chronic illness. We're going to draw on our personal experience as Unitarians to inform this contribution. And our core message is that seeking to be in right relationship with those who diverge from assumed social norms is an ongoing commitment, not a one-off decision. People change in what they know about themselves or how their bodies function over time. For instance, after Alex's diagnosis as autistic at age 48, he has been on a continuing mission to understand himself better in ways he would not have encountered previously. We hold as a starting point that Unitarians have a head start in being in right relationship with those in the margins, because many of us in the denomination consciously chose our progressive religion and honestly wish for progressive social change. But we also hold that Unitarians can be hamstrung in meeting people where they are, because most of our congregations are not very diverse, or perhaps not visibly diverse. And this means we need actively to prioritise being in right relationship with those who are different from us, and regularly seek their input into how we as individuals and congregations can do better. We're going to take our three case studies in turn, gender and or sexuality difference, chronic illness and disability, and neurodiversity. And we'll alternate interventions between us. Before we get into the main body of our contribution, we want to acknowledge a few important points. First, in keeping with the concept of intersectionality developed by the US scholar and activist, Kimberly Crenshaw, we know that for all our marginalization, we too have forms of privilege and limits to our awareness of how the lives of others can be impacted 
by their divergence from assumed social norms. Alex is a white cisgender man in a heterosexist and still racist and patriarchal society. And Tari, that's me, is a queer, a white queer transgender person. So our point is not that we have perfect vision and practice, but rather that our experiences in life as a Unitarian can help all of us think about what it means to be in right relationship. We know there will be other Unitarians in the same marginal groups as us whose experiences differ from ours. And we don't claim to be all knowing about what it's like to be in those groups as Unitarians. We just want to draw on our lived experiences to speak authentically. Second, we very much like Jane and Sarah's notion from the introductory talk this week that being in right relationship requires curiosity, being interested in people who are in some way other from ourselves and seeking to apply the platinum rule of treating people as they would wish to be treated. That's been our guiding thought in preparing tonight's talk. And now for our first piece of music for the evening, an instrumental version of the Kate Bush song that's recently become a huge hit again, thanks to its inclusion in Stranger Things a Netflix show about young people growing up in the midst of the uncanny. Running up that hill is about the deep desire humans can have to be able to swap places with other people, to gain an even better understanding of what their lives are like. And so it seemed a good choice for this evening. It's about four and a half minutes long. We're going to play the entire thing. So don't worry, we haven't gone away. Thank you. 
And so that was Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, played excellently by Vitamin String Quartet. And now we're going to dive into the first of our case study areas, which is gender and sexual orientation. And I'm going to start this off with a little story. I'm married to a lovely lass called Cheryl. Some of you may have met her if you've been uh, going to Heart and Soul on Sundays. And we were immersed in Unitarianism before she moved back to Norwich after a spell living with me in Hales Owen. And I moved to Norwich permanently. And our first weekend here together, we went to the very first Norwich Pride which was about a week after I moved. It was very good timing. And we met in the park, uh, the Unitarians, including uh, Kate Brady McKenna, and we marched with them on the parade, promising that we would be back. Well, they must have thought they'd scared us away. Because with moving and everything else, we didn't make it to the actual chapel until Easter Sunday the next year. So a full eight months later. Because queer neurodivergent people aren't always great at turning up when they say they will. And there we were on our first Sunday in our new community. And the then chair says in their notices in the introduction, we have a wedding on Friday, so there's no parking. And, oh, and actually it's lovely to see Rachel and Melissa here, whose wedding blessing we will be celebrating. Cue us shaking our heads vigorously. It was an innocent mistake by a person who thought they were extending a great welcome. To us, it was a bit of a whoops moment are also apparent same-sex couples interchangeable? The thing is, in that moment, the speaker thought they were doing something lovely. They were welcoming a new couple to the community. And this can so often be the case with that type of interaction. That to the speaker, it's a minor error and doesn't carry a lot of weight to them, but it carries more weight to the person who could have been hurt by the mistake. Fortunately, as I mentioned, we were already Unitarians. But perhaps for a newcomer, that could have marked that there wasn't such a care of queer people in the community and to continue searching for their spiritual home. Also, calling upon people in the service can be fraught with risk. Not everybody enjoys the spotlight and can find that level of attention off-putting, particularly if they're perhaps a queer couple in a new setting that where they don't know that the congregation is a welcoming congregation and they're putting their personal time and themselves on the line to come to meet you where you are and come to meet them where they are. Luckily, the chapel has proved it has an ongoing commitment to the diverse LGBTQ plus community by continuing to attend every pride that's been put on in Norwich over the past 14 years. Sometimes we've hosted extra events during Pride Week, 
a very successful talk where uh, we had the previous chief officer uh, Derek McCauley come to speak to us to talk us through how the legislative changes around uh, same-sex marriage were achieved and um, we also did some extra events during the actual equal marriage campaign where we had some wedding fairs which was which were really good because they got people to come in and see the chapel and see all the things that we could do we've also hosted numerous blessing blessings and weddings and ceremonies for lgbtq couples over the years but that doesn't mean that our work as a community and as a chapel is over there's always room for change or different approaches so recently a group of four of us in the lgbtq plus community took the step of starting an informal evening once a month with hot drinks and cakes in our hall aptly named lgbt plus coffee and cake on our posters we made sure to state that the space is an alcohol free space because we felt there were already plenty of opportunities for drinking within the wider queer community and that would make it safe for those who don't drink or want to break from that type of environment whilst acknowledging also that there's a great statistical likelihood of substance misuse in the group we were aiming to make a connection with it must be noted this isn't an event we were hosting in terms of lgbtq plus unitarianism or even spirituality it's an event using the resources at our disposal in having a hall to host somewhere where friends can meet for conversation and connection if somebody who attends decides to try a service or another ministry opportunity that we offer great for them but that wasn't the focus of the evening the focus of the evenings are just to provide and host and hold a space for people in the community to come where they get a piece of cake and as many cups of tea as they can manage but moving back into spiritual terms there does need to be a greater mindfulness of the needs of queer people when hosting events maybe your chapel or community hosts things like a carol service or concert where it might be the only time in a year when people think that it's appropriate to try and split voices by assumed gender one good example of this is perhaps the carol of good king wenselessness where there are traditionally verses which will be sung by gentlemen and ladies where in musical terms what we actually want people to hear is high and low voices the things that you might hear at carols from kings on the bbc so it's better to perhaps use those terms instead if it's absolutely essential to the aesthetic of your event that that auditory experience is had for the participants then it's a small change you swap out a couple of words you put high voices here low voices there and if people sing in what could be considered the wrong place that's up to them you can't dictate what people are doing while singing a hymn but it could make the difference to a first-time visitor who maybe finds christmas period difficult you never know what changes that you make are going to be 
going to affect your visitors or people in your congregation and nothing is lost by being inclusive in this way another thing we've tried is um name badges for people who are important in the community maybe the people who are in your committee and people so that people know who they are and also like i have this evening i've got my pronouns here so people know how to refer to me when they're speaking about me i'm now going to pass over to alex for his section of this his contribution to this section Thank you. Um, queer people uh, will all know this. We've been excluded from spiritual life in many religions, in many times, and many cultures, and we still are in many places. But of course, we haven't always been excluded. Understanding ways in which we've been invisibilized or used as objects of scorn or hatred by religious folk often makes us turn against religion altogether. I know several friends to whom that's happened, including one very dear trans friend, uh, and it's, it's a miserable situation to be in. It does us no good, in short. Now, sometimes this kind of discrimination has been deliberate. Sometimes it's been inadvertent. For example, um, Kitra's Cherry, uh, who runs the website Q Spirit and does a lot of uncovering work to explore uh, things that have been hidden in traditions, has showed how, in many cases, a lack of real cultural awareness on the part of translators of the Bible means, and other texts, of course, means we don't always get the full picture of the world as it was lived in and understood by the people who are the subject of the text. For example, Jesus. There's a famous story, isn't there, of how uh, a centurion, so not a Jew, very much a Gentile and from the oppressor class of Roman invaders in, uh, in Palestine at the time, comes to Jesus and says, I want you to heal somebody. I believe you can do it. I believe you will do it. And Jesus says, yes, you are a model of faith go home and that healing will have happened. Now, most Bible translations tell us that the person the centurion wanted healing was his servant. Not so. There's a, a term in ancient Greek, which I can't pronounce correctly, and I hope somebody else can, but it's pace. That's the nearest I can get to it in terms of pronunciation. But basically it was a category to denote, yes, a member of domestic staff, but very specifically one who was in a loving and sexual relationship with the master. We might not think that's a very fitting kind of relationship for the 21st century. But the point is that Jesus's contemporaries and likely he himself understood very much that he was being asked to heal the gay lover of a Roman centurion. And he not only did it, he told that Roman he was a model of faith. So quite nice for us to see we're being included in texts where we'd often seen invisible. 
Same's true of a lot of the education we get given in religion by our parents and families and schools. For instance, the Greek myths many of us read, especially as kids, we don't get included in that because kids don't need to know about all that nasty queer stuff, do they? So did you know, for instance, that Dionysus, the god of wine and all sorts of lovely things, is bisexual, or at least that's the label we'd probably give him today. But many other deities of the ancients had gender non-conforming priests and priestesses. But the Hindu god Ganesh, one of my personal favorites, is androgynous. When his dad Shiva cut his head off, he replaced it not with the head of a bull elephant, but with a cow elephant. He's often depicted with a soft body approaching what in that culture is the general convention of how women are represented. And he is the Lord of thresholds between real and conceptual spaces, the liminal God of doorways in senses literal and metaphorical. I'm so fond of Ganesh that I have his image on my arm. And yes, I did my research and I pray to him as a favorite God for, he's not just a tat as far as I'm concerned. Another example, and this is perhaps a little bit more left field. Did you happen to know or ever get taught that the voodoo goddess of love, beauty, arts, and the sensual reign, realm, Erzuli, manifests as male and female, as cisgender and transgender, and as heterosexual, lesbian, and gay? Phew, she's quite a gal. It took me years to find all this out. How lovely it would have been to see myself explicitly reflected in, in the divine as a child and a teenager. Unitarians who want to explicitly reach out to non-cisgender and non-heterosexual people need a willingness to adapt if they're going to reach out. You can't reach out by without allowing us to be our full selves and not have to sanitize ourselves for the benefit of straight people. I spent years in the 1980s and the 1990s being the upstanding gay man with a capital uh and a capital g and a capital m who showed why we could and should be included by living as blameless and normative a life as possible. And you know what that got me? It got me people saying, if they were all like you, Alex, there'd be no problem. But they're not, and so there is. So I won't do that anymore. It's self-censorship, and it's as cruel as overt hatred, because it's more insidious. No, thank you. For those of us here who are trans, non-binary, asexual or aromantic, querying for Unitarianism and that of the people around them would bring greater justice and security into their lives. Excuse me, I'm getting a bit hot under the collar. Some people's identity and sexual orientation defy labels that expect you to be permanently one thing or another. 
and that's perhaps something that LGBTQ politics in general and spirituality of the recent past don't focus on as much as they should have. But we can build a religious tradition that actively honours and includes people who live beyond the male, female and heterosexual, homosexual binaries. And in this way, we may sit more fully alongside certain other religion, religious traditions from outside the West, such as the Hindu tradition, who see our views of sex and gender as rather simplistically reductive. So that would be a plus for the universalist side of our denominations, beliefs and identity. We're going to have a short piece of music now for reflection before we go on to the next two case studies. And anybody who knows me will not be surprised to know that it has a relationship with a certain Fab Forcer from Scandinavia. It's Benny Anderson's version of his piece Stockholm by Night from his number one classical album, Piano. Thank you.
Now we go to uh, the second of our case studies on neurodiversity. Being autistic has shaped my life since I was born, of course, but I only received my diagnosis at the age of 48, and I've learned a lot more about it since I had my diagnosis four years ago. The burnout part of it can be very difficult to distinguish from CFS-ME, which I also have, but the way being autistic shapes my worldview is distinct. There are so many points on the autism spectrum that how it is for me may not be quite how it is for anyone else, but my strong ethical sense, my special interests, things that other people sometimes nastily call obsessions, my love for structure and guidelines and rules, hyper-empathy, particularly with suffering, deep emotions and precision with language are good examples of common autistic traits. Some of these characteristics dovetail nicely with Unitarianism. I have a special interest in theology, which comes in handy, and a refusal automatically to accept authority just because it has the right title. And this sits pretty well with the nonconformist past of the de denomination. My hyper-empathy makes me need, not just want, but need to help others who are suffering, which I'm not saying makes me a saint. It's just something that happens in my brain and I find it very difficult to switch off. My love for language and its exact usage can make me a good communicator. Hyper-empathy can also be disabling through overwhelm. There's just so much to be distressed by in the world and far more suffering than any of us can remedy individually. I have to rely on my intellect, my brain, to understand almost everything because more instinctive ways of knowing are alien or imperceptible to me. So don't ask me to tell you what my body language is doing right now. I have no idea. My autism can make me a creature of the text rather than someone who is just naturally able to access the more symbolic or the more ritual aspects of spiritual life. And of course, this can be a real limitation. And then there's the anxiety generated by being in a world or community whose norms I don't necessarily understand. And this can be crippling. It's certainly exhausting. At this point, I'd like to acknowledge that due to the nature of my neurodivergence, I have found writing my parts of this talk difficult because my brain doesn't like to do things until the last minute, sometimes if at all, which is galling because there's a part of me that's also a perfectionist. But I do generally perform well under exam conditions. ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is a terrible name for what is actually a chronic dopamine deficiency affect affecting functioning of the frontal lobe, which manifests in many fascinating and often frustrating ways. Certainly, I don't actually suffer from a lack of attention. What actually happens is my brain tries to do attention to everything 
all at once. And it's definitely not, as some people seem to understand, a problem for naughty children who are just incapable of sitting still and constantly want the attention on them. One of the things I was frequently called as a child was highly strung. I was never a great sleeper, except when I'd crash out and sleep for 12 hours straight. And that's one of the particular aspects of ADHD, which could be very impactful to people in your congregations, is that the circadian rhythm of people with ADHD is completely out from the rest of society. So generally, people with ADHD tend towards perhaps being more night owls, more active in the evening, less active at the early hours of the day, which could certainly have an impact on morning services for attendees. And um, as someone who was also perceived as a girl growing up, my understanding is that girls tend to show less of the traditional hyperactivity traits, tending more to be overactive talkers or perhaps overthink things internally. Whereas I think I had definitely more of a classic hyperactive presentation as a child. But again, being perceived as a girl, that intersection between my neurodivergence and my queerness, this was dismissed. But I think I did rather a lot of trying to use my bed as a trampoline. Of course, as I got older, my ability to manage sitting still and do work in class generally improved. This is one of the reasons there is still this idea that ADHD is a childhood disorder that people grow out of, whereas what actually happens is the symptoms which are used for diagnosis don't persist, but are overtaken by other behaviours, impulsivity and hyper-focusing on things that give that dopamine hit, which our brains are constantly searching for, perhaps only to move swiftly onto something else. So your ADHD congregation member will be the one who generally has brilliant ideas, but struggles to complete them. Or maybe they are enthusiastic in person when you broach something with them, but three unanswered emails later, you are wondering if they are truly the right person for the project. This is where teamwork in your congregation and communities is essential. They may want to take charge of your library, for example, but might just need a buddy not to do the job, but to sit with them whilst they rearrange and catalogue the books. And they often, people they ADHD often make brilliant archivists if given the right support. For example, my wife is frequently stunned when I can find places I haven't been for years with pinpoint accuracy. And that's because the long-term memory at the back of my brain is generally fine. And I have really good perception of physical landmarks and maps. So asking people with ADHD to perhaps rearrange things in your chapel, it's a great call. And now I'm going to hand back to Alex for our next section on chronic illness and disability. Okay, my next part of the personal sob story. Having a chronic fatigue syndrome or CFS or ME, which I think is myalgic encephalopathy, but I may be wrong on that has impacted every part of my life. 
uh, including, of course, the spiritual ones. It's an illness that's hard to treat. Uh, it has no agreed cause, and it can go away completely if you're lucky, or it can worsen to the point that you can't get out of bed for years, and that actually also you may die because your body effectively wastes away uh, if you're not lucky. I'm learning to live with it, but I don't like it because I'm having to unlearn so many behaviours and accept the extreme vulnerability that goes with not knowing how much I'll be able to do to look after myself on any one day. My horizons have shrunk considerably and all the decisions that I make are now both intrinsically more complicated because of the chronic illness dimension and harder to make because of the lovely brain fog and the shortened attention span. Um, I used to write multidisciplinary academic books waste, uh, based, <laughs> wasted, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip, based on uh, years of original research. And now I struggle to read fiction, sometimes not even that. It can be lonely and it can be a source of shame and disappointment to me. It can be hard to admit or at least to admit the actual consequences and real world implications because I don't want them. It's not quite being in denial. It's more wanting to make sure that I feel safe in a given situation. At least that's how I understand it. It's very hard to push past the sense of diminishment, of being less than I was, of even being unworthy, because you know, even if I know or at least hope that most people wouldn't see me that way, I did. And sometimes I do, still. So, I mean, this has obviously shaped my life as a Unitarian. Uh, on the negative side, it makes me less able to be active in the community, even remotely. I signed up, and this won't be a surprise given my love for Ganesh, I signed up for the Unitarian Hindu engagement group. And I had to leave it because I was embarrassed, because I couldn't turn up to attend the online meetings. They were in the evening, and often I just can't concentrate enough by then. The day has just taken too much out of me. I agreed to lead a service for um, a congregation earlier this year remotely and I did it but unlike when I was a regular at all that several years ago it took me literally weeks to put the damn thing together and after I gave it I was in burnout for several days. I used to be really active in the denomination and in my local church and now I just about keep up as a weekly attender of heart and soul group. I mean, there are more positive sides to it as well. One of them is that I've done a huge amount of soul searching in the last few years, slowly though. It's been a slow process most of the time, but it's gradually teaching me to be more accepting of reality and to distinguish between the things I can change and the things I can't, as the Serenity Prayer, of course, famously puts it. I have mostly, I hope, gone through the rage part of the process because things have been taken away from me. And I seem to be emerging with a renewed ability to see the divine in the small and everyday things of life. And that's very comforting. 
part of the treatment plan for my CFS is to reduce the levels of stress in my life. Good luck with that. So I spend far more time meditating and in deep relaxation than I used to. I also, in a way I didn't expect, feel closer to God now than before. And sometimes I uh, do that Rabbi Lionel Blue thing and chat to them as a friend. I know that can seem presumptuous, and I don't mean it that way, because I do spend most of my time talking to God in awe and gratitude, but I do sometimes flip the switch, and that's unexpected. Tori, how's it been for you? If you'd have asked me as a young child if I was or considered myself disabled, I would have said no. Of course not. Uh, to a child, people who are disabled have visible markers of being disabled. That's what we are told within society. But I had eczema then, as I still do now. And I vividly remember my parents trying to apply my various creams often with my screaming because they were cold or my skin was feeling particularly sensitive and I very rarely had the fun of the bubble bath. I was one of those nice matey character bottles, maybe the traditional sailor one rather than the princess. And in fact, my sister was known to drop the soap, simple brand of course, into the bath, so I had to get out. I had to avoid petting my grandparents and friends' dogs, which was a shame because they always wanted fuss. But these seemed like small things that I just kind of had to deal with. But in my first year at university, I had an experience which changed my perspective of my skin condition. I studied psychology, and as part of our expectations of undergraduate study, particularly first and second years, were the psychology school's pool of semi-willing participants. And we had to partake in six credits of studies put on by other um, students in high levels to pass a semester. And we were handsomely rewarded with printer credits for our time. And that seemed fine. All was going well. But then I did a test which required in um, measuring galvanic skin response and it seemed innocuous enough and electrical currents passed across the skin measuring something statistically significant delivered by a little meter that you wear on your finger while completing what the set task was by this point my eczema had migrated it started off behind my knees and my elbow joints as a small child usual places for topical eczema before ravaging my thighs as a teen I'd now settled to affecting my hands and palms of my hands and my feet. You can probably figure out where this is going. An electrical current passed across already sensitive skin on top of the probable stress, which is a factor in skin conditions like that, from the first year managing my own studies and living away from home, triggered an infection. Suddenly, what had seemed like a bodily quirk, which had been annoying to manage as a child, could affect my first year of studies. I couldn't take notes in lectures. Our flat had a doorknob as opposed to a handle and the soft cotton gloves, which the docs are suggested to protect my skin whilst it was being treated, meant I couldn't easily open the door. I wanted lasagna for dinner when we went out to the pub and I couldn't use both a knife and fork simultaneously. 
so my sister had to cut up the pasta sheets. For a while, whilst my skin repaired, I was practically fingerprintless, and I will always regret not using that time to commit a diamond heist. But it was a very formative experience for me in terms of my identity as a disabled person. Some people would say it's humbling, but I don't like that language because if I feel if I were to be humbled by it, it would feel like it was a lessening somehow. Whereas it actually felt like it was an opening up and I was able to lay claim to a part of myself I hadn't truly acknowledged before. And after that experience, I was much more open with others about what my needs are with regards to my health. So as well as eczema, I've progressed to having other allergies, mostly through overexposure. I have a latex allergy. I had dental work as a teen and I love blowing up balloons as a small child. I must have inhaled far too many particles of latex. And this isn't, wouldn't be immediately obvious if I were to appear in your, in your congregation or community. So maybe a family who opted for a naming ceremony during that morning's worship and have decided to include a beautiful balloon arch as part of the decoration would cause a problem for me. In these instances, it's about communication. A message out to your mailing list, maybe a sign on the door as people come in saying there are balloons inside um, would help people manage that particular feature of your Sunday service. This approach will generally never go amiss, like I said before. If you just put a note, it's not going to hurt anybody if it doesn't apply to anybody. But there's a misconception that, again, allergies are something which are related to small children that you just grow out of. But a, a six-year-old with a latex allergy is just as likely to be affected by a balloon as I am. The same applies to my food needs, which are all related to my latex allergy. There are there's a ton of stuff I can't eat anymore, which is frustrating as a vegetarian, because things which people assume vegetarians are really going to like, like avocados, raw tomatoes, all have latex in them. So there are restrictions in those. And sometimes when you're putting on perhaps a shared lunch or a group catering with your hospitality team, people in your community still need a heads up about what the food's going to be, because there may be allergies in your community which you haven't considered and they're just going to need time to figure out what it is they're going to eat on the day and this can mean sometimes that people with food needs will exclude themselves voluntarily which means they miss out on those important community building experiences my final point was considering perhaps sometimes just the needs of people with physical disabilities i have a progressive physical disability as well and Sometimes we need to think beyond a ramp in our building. It may, we think it makes our building accessible. But a ramp doesn't just mean it's the only thing that you can have in your building, into your building. We also need to think about the fact that people with physical disabilities may be in our ministry positions. And lots of our churches and chapels have podiums from which to speak. And if somebody who wants to perhaps go into a ministry or run your services, doesn't see the accessibility of how to get up to speak maybe they just won't have that experience and everybody's unitarianism will be affected by the fact that they couldn't see themselves leading your community and now i'm going to pass over to alex for our conclusions so in our conclusions 
uh, we wanted to make a few bullet points and uh, they're going to be summed up in a slide which will be shared as a prompt for the breakout discussions afterwards if you want to stay for those. So to reiterate, being in right relationship with those whose lives are different from those considered normative in our society is an ongoing process, not a one-off decision. And it will evolve. It will involve alongside the congregation and its members, even if those are not new members, people who have been in that congregation for years, because we do change over uh, the course of our lives. Uh, I've always been disabled, but didn't know that till I was nearly 50. I have developed chronic fatigue syndrome uh, over the course of my life. I may have had it in my 20s, but I certainly had it re-diagnosed a few years ago. So things change, people change, and even with the same people in your congregation, there will be different needs for those members of congregation over time. So it's a long haul commitment. It's not a one off, but everybody stands to benefit from it because it makes people more likely to be able to play a full part in congregations uh, and as Unitarians generally. So here are a few suggestions that we put together. Uh, they're not exhaustive, but we hope they're a useful starting point. First, do an audit of congregational needs, ideally every year, but certainly on a regular basis. You may discover through doing this that not only are there skills and wishes from the congregation to help the group that you haven't yet tapped into, but you may also find that there are ways of including others more fully that haven't been tried simply because nobody knew they were necessary. There may be needs in communication or delivery style that haven't been identified. So for instance, uh, some people may prefer to always be able to access your services online for various reasons. And that may mean that although you go back to hybrid services, you certainly don't lose Zoom or whatever else other carrier you're using to provide that activity. Secondly, if they wish to identify themselves, ask congregation members who are different and whose lives are different from assumed norms to help community leaders and to help the community in general understand what it is that they need or that can, they can maybe offer but don't make us responsible for educating you once the need is identified. That's a burden, an extra burden to place on us that we just simply may not be able to carry. So please ask, definitely people will wish to help if they possibly can, but do your own research. That's courteous and inclusive. Third, Actively choose service material that reflects non-mainstream lives. This can happen in a whole range of ways, from asking people who have different forms of disability, perhaps, to talk about what that life is like, to perhaps more abstract things, like making sure in your services you don't just assume that everybody's going to relate to Bible stories or even tales from other religions where everybody's straight and everybody's able-bodied. It's not good enough because other people exist. Please include us. 
Fourthly, please don't assume that everyone feels able to make spoken contributions in services or to church meetings. Some people find that a really crippling thought because of anxiety or perhaps because they're autistic. And that's something I wish I'd been told when I was a lecturer. Perhaps some practical uh, solutions could be to make chat functions available when you're doing uh, meetings or to have uh, an anonymous suggestion, suggestion box at the back of your uh, meeting house or chapel hall so people can make contributions that way. Fifth, try to be mindful about social or personal anxiety and how people wish to be included. I know this can be difficult and none of us are mind readers, but some people who are autistic or another have social anxiety for other causes, don't always want or feel able to respond to what you might consider a warm uh, reception if they're a newcomer to your chapel or meeting house. Well-intentioned acts such as trying to make people welcome can often do the opposite because people feel like they're being put on the spot and would much rather take their own time to be more openly part of the community. You can't be a mind reader, but just be aware that this may be somebody's preference. And if you do a regular audit of your community, of your congregation's needs, hopefully you'll find ways of acting, acting uh, sensibly and suitably. Similar point, please bear in mind things like sensory overload or ability to focus for long periods of time, or even the kind of times of day that you hold services. If it's possible, don't just hold them at 10.30 or 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. At very least record them so they can be, can be watched and active and sort of engaged with at other times of the week. Similarly, you may find that people tune out if they're being asked to focus on one particular fo uh, form of processing information for most of an hour. Of course, the hymn sandwich makes opportunities for, to get out of this by introducing music at various points. But a mixture of different forms of emphasis on different senses is a really good way to help people focus for longer and get more out of your services. And perhaps finally, and again this goes back to not being able to be a mind reader, but making sure you do regular audits of what your congregation needs or prefers, just be aware that some of the content that you're using and some of the material that you're using may spark some form of overload for members of the community. It's not just about being triggering about things you might be talking about, such as uh, sexual violence or whatever. It's also about being aware that sometimes people process things more slowly than you imagine. And so the aftermath of a service that you put on can be quite disturbing for members of the congregation who have those processing uh, capacities. It's not about being a mind reader. Again, it goes back to doing an audit of your congregation on a regular basis and knowing what works for them and how they can best be helped to be an active member of the congregation. I'm going to pass over to Tori now to close. Our closing words 
are We Have a Calling in This World by Jean M. Rickard. We have a calling in this world. We are called to honour diversity, to respect differences with dignity, and to challenge those who would forbid it. We are people of a wide path. Let us be wide in affection and go our way in peace. Amen. Well, thank you both. That was astonishing and nourishing and what I needed. And I, I feel that there will be other people who also needed to hear that. Alex and Tori have given us a lot to think about. So we're going to take that five minute break that I mentioned. So I invite you to go and do what you need to do in that five minutes to make yourself comfortable whatever you need to do and then I invite you to come back here so that we can pop you into smaller breakout groups for a 20 minute chat about the issues that we've been hearing about this evening you will be given some prompt questions for these chats and those questions will appear as soon as I as soon as I shut up basically uh, just to remind you those chats won't be recorded and they won't be monitored although one or two of the panel may pop in and out just to see what's going on not to check up on you just to we don't want to miss out after those chats we will bring you back in here just for a minute or so just to say good night to you if you are leaving us at this point you go with our blessings i hope that you enjoy the rest of your evenings and we look forward to seeing you for some what well, for the for the last chat the last talk tomorrow evening I apologize tomorrow we'll be welcoming Cody Coyne and Winnie Gordon so let's take that five minute break and if you're leaving now I I'm sure I speak for you if I thank Alex and Tori again we'll be back in five minutes